Welcome to the Critique Podcast. Today we have Sharon Mills, a clinical ethicist with the Deakin University School of Medicine, and Associate Professor Bill Sylvester, the Director of the Respecting Patient Choices Program, discussing the ANZIC's statement on care and decision-making at the end of life for the critically ill. So thank you, Bill, for meeting with me to talk about the, um, the ANZIC statement. Uh, first of all, congratulations on it. I, I, I really like the document, and I think pedagogically it works well from an education perspective, particularly the way at each section you outline the main sort of outcomes or messages for each section, and then there's a clinical vignette. Having said that, it is very long. The AMA released a statement also in 2014 on end-of-life care and advanced care planning, and that's a 10-page document. This one is 148 pages with 11 chapters. Do you think that's accessible? Uh, we didn't We didn't deliberately aim for a certain length, but we wanted to make sure that this was a, a useful resource document. And the, the length is, uh, I think, has arisen from the fact that there was a lot to cover that there is not a lot in the literature elsewhere. So part of it is evidence-based and part of it is experience, practical experience and uh, opinion-based. And the length is also uh, increased because we do have duplication of important information throughout the document. And that was a deliberate decision because we know that ICU doctors and nurses, and in fact doctors and nurses from other parts of acute care will be going just immediately to specific chapters and we want to make sure they get the right information in the right place. And if they end up reading the whole document and the, the, some of the same important ideas are repeated, uh, we see that that's a very useful emphasis for the most important points. So we don't apologise for the length of the document. Uh, we think that it's unlikely that most people are going to read the whole document in one go. So how do you see its use in the clinical context? We see the use of this document both in terms of establishing the important principles about end-of-life care and communication and also providing practical advice, both in terms of um, asking questions so that people who are reading this will reflect on their own practice, also by putting in clinical vignettes so they can see in a concrete way how this has been applied and then having uh, practical advice and recommendations so that clinicians can uh, not only get the principles but also receive some useful practical uh, guidance on how to apply this in their work. What are your expectations or do you have any thoughts on how the trainees will use it? I think with the support from both ANZIX and the College of Intensive Care Medicine, the expectation will be that the trainees will read the whole document in the same way that they're expected to read the ANZIC statement on death and organ donation, and they know it's examinable. Um, We believe that good communication and care around the end of life is also uh, learnable, accessible and examinable. And I think that the leaders in intensive care look forward to using this document to improve um, uh, intensive care. You know, in in, uh, medical education, we know that assessment drives learning. So do you think the specific knowledge that we see in in this 
this document should be assessed? I think that it should definitely be assessed by the college, not by uh, setting up multiple choice questions to test whether someone's read every word, mm. but for the trainees to use it as a, a to develop their own uh, process of how to deal with difficult situations and how to deal with end-of-life care, and um, particularly in a Viva situation or an essay question, the trainees will be assessed on their ability to think through um, how to deal with difficult uh, situations and to demonstrate they've got an, an ethical basis, they understand the principles and they can apply these in a practical way. And I, th I think that is definitely accessible. If you were giving a lecture to either undergrad or graduate doctors on the statement, at the end of the lecture, what would be your three take-home messages? I think the first key message would be to apply the platinum rule, um, which is treat each patient the way they want to be treated, as against the golden rule, which is treat the patient the way you'd want to be treated. And linked with that is to remember to treat them and their families as human beings. Always be looking at whether as you walk past a, the bedside of a patient and the family there looking at you, just think for yourself, if that was me sitting there, would I want the doctor to stop and come and talk to me about how things are going? Uh, the second take-home message is always do your best to find out from patients what they want while they've still got the capacity to tell you. So if you have the ability and the time to go and talk to patients before they have their operation or before they become un so unwell that they can't talk to you, then make the most of that opportunity or make sure that others make the most of that opportunity. In other words, what I'm talking about is practice advanced care planning in an active way and make sure it gets documented so that then when difficult decisions need to be made, then they can be made in the light of the patient's wishes. I would say the third take-home message is in your clinical practice, aim for a consensus in the decision-making. Shared decision-making doesn't just involve the patient and the family, uh, but also involves the other key members of the team. That includes the team outside the intensive care unit. Uh, and if you're aiming for consensus and mutual respect for other people's opinions and keeping the focus of the decisions you're making based on what's in the patient's best interests, then mm. we can then many times avoid doing things that we, in retrospect, would have chosen not to. You've brought up the platinum rule, which I, I love. So I, I think what you're talking about there is patient-centred care. The AMA statement's obviously targeted to a wide variety of a number of specialty areas in medicine. Theirs is very patient-centred care in its, in its vernacular. To me, the ANZIC statement sort of flits between disease-centredness and patient-centredness. Do you think that's a fair statement? We certainly aimed to focus on what was patient-centred, uh, but recognising that we're going to be providing documents read by a lot of doctors and nurses that are still thinking about the particular disease or disease group that they're dealing with. We do have a section that's focusing on particular diseases because we thought there needed to be some specific advice for those 
special situations, but I think that the overall balance is towards patient-centred care. Mm. I'm not sure if I've really answered your question. No, you properly. have. You have. And look, it's it's a tricky one, and and we'll explore it a little bit more. And I guess I'll I'd like to explore it in relation to the ethics section of of the statement. First of all, I, I see it's it's based on the principles, which. The, the ethicists, the, the medical ethicists are moving more and more away from. However, doctors seem to like the concreteness of the principles. What do you think? Do you think, do you think the ethicists are going the wrong way? Do you think we should just say, listen, doctors work best with principles, let's just stick with it and play within that, that area? What, can you just clarify what you mean about the ethicists moving away from principles? ethical principles? Yep, sure. So... A lot of the writing in medical ethics literature now is saying that to concentrate on the four bioethical principles, which was first brought out in the 60s by Beauchamp and Childress, of autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence and justice. And um, I know the statement speaks specifically about distributive justice, that they're too reductionist. As a result, for better application of ethics, they are moving towards a different style that's more patient-centred. When we, when we looked at this, the reason why we went for the age-old principles of autonomy, beneficence and non-maleficence and distributive justice, we went to that because you know, in, in, our, in our medical education, we don't, and I'm sure in nursing education, you get very little education on this. Mm. And although we intuitively know what is ethical and not ethical or really if you look up the definition of ethical and non-ethical it's about what's right and what's wrong although we know this intuitively it's useful for all of us to have this set out in a structured way well we found that these basic principles of autonomy and making sure we're doing good and not doing harm and that we're thinking about the use of the health budget and the use of resources other than the patient right in front of us, are really good basic principles to get doctors to think about. And then if we show how we can apply that in a practical way with our individual patients, as you say, looking at the principle of autonomy, you can't be really exercising the principle of autonomy unless you ensure that you're sitting down and talking to the patient, making sure they're fully informed and that they have an opportunity to exercise a and well-informed decision. So I wouldn't pretend to be a, an ethicist by any means. And how much bioethicists away from the clinical uh, setting cogitate and write about other ways of looking at this without actually being in the, um, the clinical situation, I don't know. But certainly the feedback we've had on what we've written here has been uh, that it's been very useful for people. Mm. I think the nuance you've shown in, in basing it in the principles here is very good. And as I said, the way you use vignettes is, is a good way to demonstrate. Do you think many doctors out there really understand patient-centred care? I think superficially they may have an understanding, but the way I see it being applied practically worries me. We can all think of cases where we think of surgeons and and physicians who made decisions based more on what they wanted rather than what the patient wanted or based it on what they thought the patient wanted but they hadn't actually bothered to ask the patient uh, suggest to me they don't really understand patient-centred care. And then when you look at the research, research 
for example, the work done by Charlie, where they surveyed intensivists about how they would handle different clinical situations, again, would indicate mm-hmm. they, they didn't really understand patient-centred care, where they would still go against the patient's wishes, even when those wishes were expressed very clearly, uh, just because the, the doctor thought the patient had a reasonable prognosis or they didn't agree with what the patient's decision was. Mm. So that's a long-winded way of answering your question by saying, no, I don't really think a lot of doctors have a good understanding of patient-centred care. Do you think it is possible to engender a culture of patient-centred care in the ICU setting? Yeah, I do. If you provide the, um, the knowledge and you set out policies within that uh, ICU uh, support that approach. And then if you, you know, with leadership from the top and throughout the senior intensive care doctor and nursing show that this is exactly what you're going to follow and that you're prepared to follow it through. So that then when difficult decisions need to be had or difficult discussions with surgeons or other non-ICU doctors saying that you're not going to keep going with things that are not in the patient's best interests or against the patient's wishes, then that's where you can um, end up with a change in the culture. It's not easy, but it needs to be done. I've, I've had um, medical students and junior doctors say to me that they don't think it's possible in acute care settings, that acute care settings must primarily be disease-centred. What would you say to that? Well, I think they need to go away and think again because, uh, firstly, it's not what patients want. And if they thought that decisions are going to be made based on a disease-centred approach, then they will lose confidence in those clinicians being able to look after them. Secondly, it goes against the research and I think it ignores all the basic principles of patient care. Mm. The, the AMA statement, as I said, it's, it's, it is chiefly patient-centred, but they have one section on emergency care that they're saying in an emergency care situation, care should always be disease centres. But the ANZIC statement's far more nuanced, and I think it, it, it handles this very well. Do you think for your average, everyday doctor that they do need to go to a disease-centred approach? Look, I think... Any doctor or nurse working in the acute setting should have the intelligence to be able to always apply a nuanced approach to their their care. And to say that that care has to be disease-centred rather than patient-centred, I think really underestimates people's ability to um, think this through and make clear decisions. I, I don't really understand how can you say that it has to be one or the other. Why should it not always be both? Mm. Of course, when you're making decisions about what medical treatment or what surgery to apply, then of course it's got to apply to the disease. But you should never be treating a disease without looking at the whole patient at the same time. There's a, um, a section in the statement on withdrawal and withholding. And there have been recent studies in Europe looking at what critical care nurses and doctors get most morally conflicted about and withdrawal and withholding comes up time and time again. Do you think there's a moral difference for you when you're making decisions for withdrawal versus withholding? I don't think there's a moral difference between withdrawing and withholding but I do 
think that there is a practical difference. In other words, the way you apply that and the way it uh, helps you in your decision-making and in your communication with the patient or the family and with their ability to absorb and accept what's going on, there is a difference. Let me give you an example. If you as a doctor or the non-ICU doctors or the family are struggling to accept that the person is not going to recover, then that's an opportunity to, rather than withhold at that moment, you can apply a trial of treatment. And that may mean taking the patient into the ICU, treating for a period of time, and then assessing whether the patient responds to that treatment. So with that trial of treatment, you're demonstrating to yourself, to the other doctors, to the nurses, and to the patient and or the family that you've had a go and either they then respond to the treatment, which is great, or they don't respond to the treatment and then everyone feels much more certain uh, that the prognosis is poor and in addition, all those different people go away feeling like we did our best or we gave the the patient the best shot. So in that case, applying a treatment and then withdrawing it because it hasn't worked is going to achieve a more satisfactory outcome than withholding the treatment in the first place where you may be leaving yourself or other doctors or the family thinking what if we'd had a go maybe um, this patient would have survived. That's a good example and it brings me to my next point Um, and as you know we're looking at this in Geelong at the moment the referrals and admissions to ICU that are appropriate or not appropriate. Um, The statement makes reference to withdrawal withhold and withholding with emphasis on met teams and in this in this context it'll often be the junior doctors in the hospital after hours making either withdrawal or withholding decisions do you think it's their difficulty in making withholding decisions that's leading to ICU admissions that may not be in the best interest of the patient At the cutting edge where these difficult decisions have to be made by an ICU team that's been called to a medical emergency team call, the reasons why the doctors who have to make the decision on the spot may err on the side of admitting the patient be because they're not sure, they're giving the patient survival the benefit of the doubt, or because they want to give a trial of treatment for the reasons that I gave before, or they can see that the family or the parent team are going to struggle with that decision and sometimes it's easier or practical, particularly in the middle of the night, to bring the patient to the ICU, gain some control over the circumstances and then uh, make a decision based on more information over the next 24 hours. I think that's reasonable from an ethical perspective if, uh, as long as you're not leaving the patient suffering and indeed the patient and the family may feel reassured that you're erring on the side of caution so that then if a decision is made to withhold further treatment or withdraw um, that it's based on all the information rather than a rushed decision. Mm. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about advanced care planning because there is information in the statement about advanced care planning. Why does advanced care planning here in a statement about end of life in a critical care situation. 
Well, the reason why advanced care planning is a crucial part of end-of-life decision-making in intensive care is because in making a decision on a patient who more often than not will no longer have capacity to be involved in that decision-making means you're making a decision in the patient's best interests. And the legislation and the the ethical principles state that you should be taking the patient's wishes into account when you're making those difficult decisions. And the only way you can take their wishes into account is by knowing what they were before they lost capacity. And uh, that's why I first got involved in advanced care planning, because I was increasingly appalled at the number of decisions we're making in intensive care without having any idea what the patient would have wanted at that time. Advanced care planning is a an absolutely crucial part of that process. What's the doctor's role in operationalising it? The doctor's role in operationalising advanced care planning is to make sure that they've spoken to the patient or the family or they've made sure that others speak to the patient or the family and that whoever does speak to them gets it documented so that at a later stage everyone knows what the patient would or would not have wanted at that time. Do you think this is happening? Uh, Advanced care planning is certainly not happening enough. Doctors are reticent to talk to patients about this Mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. They, They don't believe they've got the time. They don't feel comfortable. They haven't got the skills to ask patients about what they would want if they became very sick. I don't think that any of those reasons are satisfactory. As doctors, we should always be talking to patients about the social history aspect, which includes... What's your current state of health? How is it impacting on your life? What are your goals and values um, at this time? And particularly, if you became sick in the future, where would you draw the line in the sand? What would be an acceptable circumstance and what would be an unacceptable outcome uh, for which you wouldn't want ongoing treatment? Now, just asking those things, as you can see, as long as you've developed the skills, it doesn't take long to Mm. find that out from the patient. And believe me, and the research shows that as soon as you bring this up with the average uh, patient, particularly those who have got illness, they very quickly cotton on to what you're talking about and they can very quickly tell you what would be an acceptable outcome. The important thing is not to ask them about if you have this condition, do you want that treatment? Your discussion should be about what's an acceptable outcome, not about a shopping list of what treatments you want under which circumstances. And that brings me to something... The gold standards framework from the UK has looked at, at something very similar in the primary care setting and it's, it's quite successful in identifying patients and also having these conversations with them. One of the, the outcomes they hope to improve is what they call cross-boundary care, so that care for the patient between primary care, tertiary care, the subacute sector and also involving all of the health professionals in between. Do you think we could be doing that better? And I think if we're talking about the intensive care setting, mm. the ability of the doctors to contact the general practitioner is very easy. And I think too often contacting the GP only occurs when the individual doctor thinks it's a good idea. It should be much more systematised. And I know that the GPs, when they get contacted by intensive care to find out about a patient's past medical history, but also their past social history and what they would or would not want, uh, not only increases the confidence that the GPs hold in what they're 
what the doctors and nurses are doing in the hospital, but greatly increases the knowledge of the decision makers in the ICU and they very frequently find out crucial information. Mm. So it could be happening much better. And I think as a routine, there are so many other things that we insist occur as a routine in the ICU. Why wouldn't calling the GP to A, ask them what's going on and B, tell them what's happening in the ICU? Uh, why that's not a routine, I don't know. I th- Bill, I'll just come back a little bit to one, one of the things that's coming up in the medical ethics literature more and more is something called microethics. And microethics is, is closely aligned to patient-centred care. It involves things such as what we call authentic patient preferences, which is, you know, around the idea of autonomy. But it recognises that patients in particular are in a vulnerable position. So to allow them full autonomy is almost a nonsense. It also talks about things like hope, goals, values... Something that's sneaking into the literature more and more now, which really interests me, is the effect of doctors' bias on the decisions they make and how they communicate with patients. The original idea was that doctors should be objective in how they consider the facts and make decisions for patients. Do you think that's possible in end-of-life care? Essentially, you're asking about how doctors take into account their own biases in the decisions that are, the shared decisions that are made in end of life care well we know that doctors are pretty good at talking patients or families into or out of whatever the doctor thinks is appropriate and if we recognize that and declare our own position when we're talking to patients or families about the decisions that need to be made it then makes it much more likely that the shared decisions will be made without a particular bias from the doctor. In the same way as we know with decisions about organ donation, if the doctor declares their own position, then the the family can then take that into account when they're making the decision on behalf of someone who's been considered as a potential uh, organ donor. I think that open or that transparent approach is much more defensible than doctors thinking that they are aware of their own biases and then not declaring them. So I think it is achievable, but it needs it's something that needs to be practised. It also means that then when the doctor says to a patient or a family, look, here are the things that we can do, but also here are the things that we can't do and these are the reasons why, then at least the patient or the family are aware why a particular treatment is not being offered Um, because it's not clinically appropriate, rather than it just not being mentioned. You spoke very early about doctors being reflective, and I think this is a big part of reflective practice, is recognising what what influences you, what is it about you that influences the decisions you're making. There's also been some literature in the pal care setting we, we have to try and help patients articulate their authentic preferences for advanced care planning. So an, an authentic preference, what you're implying there is it's a, it's a preference that's based on being fully informed of the situation, but also encouraging or supporting the patient to think through what are the alternatives and to assist them to make a decision that's not superficial or too reflexive but it 
that supports them to think about what's the, the likely outcome of this. So if, for example, you're asking a patient to make a decision about whether to be ventilated given that they've got an exacerbation of COPD, you ensure that they think through how they'd cope with a tracheostomy if they required one, how they'd cope with being on a ventilator for a few days and how well you can make sure during that time that they're adequately sedated so they don't suffer during that period of ventilation. But also to think through, if I do have ventilation and having a tracheostomy, what am I likely to get back to? And if it's a patient who's normally on home oxygen and can only walk from bed to chair, um, that they have a good understanding that with this exacerbation, whether they're likely to end up being worse than that afterwards. So if that's not acceptable, then going through any sort of treatment may not be in their best interest. In other words, being an authentic decision, ensuring that they've been given all the information and you've helped them think it through. Yeah, I suppose, and we, we talk about authenticity more with the incapacitated patient. You know, you'll have daughters or sons saying, but mum's a fighter. Well, she may well be in some situations, but there are many other things about her. And, and the main thing about her at the moment is that she's ventilated in an ICU bed and she's not going to be better than when she was before. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's, it's bringing it down to what's important here and now in this situation. Yeah, and using, allowing the, the family to make glib comments like she's a fighter without actually exploring that... Mm-hmm then means you're leaving that family satisfied that they've made a decision which is actually not an authentic decision because yeah. it's it's based on a misunderstanding of what's really going on. The AMA statement talks about conscientious objection. Section 6 of the ANZIC statement um, is around conflict and managing conflict. Do you think that conscientious objection is just a way for doctors that to for people to use an excuse to do what they want rather than than address their bias well my understanding of conscientious objection is not being forced to do something that you are not comfortable with and the one that we most recognize is a a doctor who doesn't want to conduct an abortion But the expectation there is that that doctor will then refer that patient to another doctor who is prepared to do that. But conscientious objection doesn't allow you to do something to a patient just because that's what you want to do if it doesn't comply with what the patient would want. So I don't think a person talking about conscientious objection can have it both ways. They, They can't say, I'm now going to proceed or continue with this treatment even though the patient doesn't want it because I've got an objection to stopping it, um, that's where, again, the doctor should hand over to another doctor if they're not prepared to withdraw that treatment. How important do you think it is for us to educate practitioners in the pre-ICU setting? We spoke a little bit about this with advanced care planning, But even when they get these, let's call patients with a reduced prognosis, into the emergency department or the wards, how do we, do we need to educate them? Or because communication is done fairly well in ICU, do we just say, you know, no, just bring them here and we'll we'll do it. We're actually good at end-of-life care. I I think the 
the whole area of about how to deal with the end-of-life care of people who are critically ill needs to begin outside the ICU. Because if it's clear that this patient would not want ongoing treatment, or indeed that ongoing treatment is not clinically indicated, then it's it's an ethical conflict to then not wait uh, to wait and then only resolve that once they end up in the intensive care unit. If it's clear that you could sort that out before they come into the intensive care unit, and then you can leave, you can enable the patient to remain in the ward to um, receive their end of life care there and to continue to be able to communicate with their family and friends there, that's much more important than losing that opportunity and having them die connected to a machine in the intensive care unit. And indeed, it still leaves open the opportunity that if if there's nothing further that can be done to help them survive in the hospital, then you can facilitate them to return back to their home to receive their end-of-life care there, surrounded by family and friends and staff that love them. Well... Thank you, Bill. Again, congratulations on the um, the ANZIC statement. I think it's it's very, very well done and is an excellent resource for doctors and nurses and anybody really working in the critical care setting. And thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.